0: We'll hear argument now on number 03409, K.P. Permanent Makeup, Inc. versus Lasting Impression, Inc. Uh, Mr. Michon. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court.
1: This case concerns whether or not a defendant in a trademark case who fulfills the statutory requirements of the fair use defense must also demonstrate an absence of likelihood of confusion in order to avail himself of that affirmative defense. Now, here are four reasons why that should not be the case. In first place, if that is the case, it would render the defense useless, because if there is no likelihood of confusion, then there's no trademark infringement to, to begin with. So why should someone try
0: to um, prove
1: and affirm a defense when there's no trademark infringement?
0: Um, <coughs> secondly- I agree with Judge Niemeyer's comment in the Fourth Circuit case, I take it. Uh, yes. Okay. Um,
1: Secondly, what it does is it shifts the burden of proof from the plaintiff to the defendant. Um, There's no reason ever to. um, There's no reason ever to. um, To prove an absence of likelihood of confusion if you're a defendant, and then also, well, sorry. There's no reason to. Um, prove the fair use defense if you have to also prove an absence of likelihood of confusion because it, it's just much more of a burden. You have to prove, first of all.
2: In this case, did the plaintiff offer any evidence of uh, confusion, consumer confusion?
1: This was a motion for summary judgment.
2: And was there anything in the affidavits or attachments that had to do with consumer confusion on behalf of the plaintiff below?
1: Yeah, actually, the record does, uh, does contain some references to confusion, the uh, um, in this case, the, the respondent, they were claiming that they did have some people that were actually were confused. And when that happens, you, you need to look at what is causing the confusion. Um, and, um, but essentially well, it might
2: make it necessary for a defendant in such a situation in order to avoid some kind of summary judgment and uh, also offer evidence on consumer confusion to try to show there wasn't any.
1: Well, but that's shifting the issue then to whether or not there's likelihood of confusion. Um, however, even if there — what I'm saying is even if there is confusion, if you meet the elements of the fair use defense, it doesn't matter if there's any resulting confusion.
2: Well, is it possible that uh, showing consumer confusion could be considered by the Court on the issue of what's a fair use? What's fair?
1: Well, the thing is, a lot of times when there is confusion, that is evidence that the term or the word being used is not being used as a mark. So the confusion illustrates that one of the elements of the fair use defense—whether or not the term is being used descriptively or as a mark, whether or not those elements are being Um, met—the confusion does not go to the likelihood of confusion issue. Rather, it goes to the the
3: individual elements of the fair use. Well, but I'm interested in in Justice O'Connor's point. Uh, suppose it's a close case as, as to whether or not uh, the use is in good faith and it's only to scratch it. Uh, With reference to good faith, suppose there's very substantial confusion that's caused by the uh, allegedly uh, infringing mark. Uh, does that at least bear on the good faith assessment? Uh, in other words, suppose that it were shown that the um, owner of, of, of the Non-registered mark, the alleged infringing mark, um, use the phrase, not the mark, but use the phrase deliberately in order to cause confusion. With that? Well, yes.
1: Well, that would show an absence of good faith, and good faith is one of the elements of the fair use defense. Well, so that
3: if you know uh, that there's going to be confusion, there's no good faith. You wouldn't go that far.
1: No, I wouldn't go that far. Um, it's it's a balancing test. So that's where it says fairly and in good faith, and you have to look at how descriptive the, the word is. In particular. For instance, if you're using the word best, as in best buy or best foods, I mean best is an extremely descriptive word. So you could go a lot further and claim, hey, I have the best I have the best food or, you know, come to my store, I have the best buy. And yes, there could be confusion, but that is one of the risks that Well is it
2: your position that uh, subjective good faith is always a defense, no matter how unreasonable it is or how much confusion results? Is that your position?
1: No, I wouldn't go that far, because you also have to look at the objective use.
2: I would have thought that consumer confusion is one factor in determining fairness, perhaps not subjective good faith, but certainly on the issue of fairness. Some of the amici take that position, do they not?
1: Well, I think I was reading the amicus brief carefully last night. I think the issue of confusion, um, as the interbriefs points out, you have to look at whether the confusion is illustrative of whether or not the term is being used as a mark or not. Um, The same evidence that shows confusion can be used to show a likelihood of confusion on the plaintiff's side of the case, and that same evidence can also be used to – in the case of determining whether or not the elements
0: of the fair use um, defense have been, have been met. What, do, what did the district court do here? Did it grant summary judgment or deny summary judgment? the,
1: dist- well, the district court granted summary judgment on the fair use defense. It found that uh, in this case the mark was being used sorry, that my clients' the words were being used not as a mark, only to describe and that the use was done uh, fairly and in good faith. Uh, the Ninth Circuit
4: — The district court, this way <laughs> uh, seemed to focus on the use of the word microcolor, just the word. It didn't bring up what was new in 1999, that is, uh, a brochure appears where microcolor is not simply a word, but it appears in a logo-like fashion. And as I understand it, the district court said you could use Microcolor as you had been using it since 1991. It didn't refer to the stylized 1999 new appearance.
1: Yes, yes, that is correct. The district court, in its opinion, did not specifically refer to that use in 1999.
4: Um, And it might not have been confusion just by using the word, but when you're using it in a logo-like appearance, maybe that's different.
1: Well, in, in the abstract case, it, it could be. I would argue, though, in this case, it's not, because that was one use on a you have a 10-page brochure, and it's, it's one use on a 10-page brochure, and you on that same page of the brochure, at the very bottom, it said, uh, my client's uh name kp permanent makeup so well, that
5: wouldn't relate to the question presented here anyway it wouldn't relate to the reason for which we took this
1: case uh
5: correct i mean it m- maybe the uh, the district court uh uh misinterpreted or misapplied fairly and in good faith if it didn't consider the logo like use but uh, but as i understand it the only question we have before us is whether the uh the fairly and in good faith provision uh is an exception even when there is uh confusion. Yes,
6: I, I would agree with that. Is is that Is I then I'm, I'm mixed up. I thought that the issue is whether you on your side have to present evidence of no confusion.
1: Yeah. Yes. I, so I, I think we're both as are saying that. The so same Connor's
6: part. question is concerned, I thought your answer would be If they want to go and present evidence that there's confusion to the point where it's so obviously unfair it's ridiculous, they can do it. I mean, do you object to that? No, I I agree. So your answer to her question is, of course it could be relevant. Let the other side come in and show that it's relevant. You don't have to show that there is no confusion. Absolutely. That's where we are, is that right? That's
1: exactly where we are.
5: Could you give us a um, um, be much more sympathetic to your case if I could readily envision a situation where there is confusion, uh, but nonetheless uh, the uh, uh, the use is is fair and in good faith. Give, well, give me a clear example. In
1: my particular case, with uh, no, or, or I, mean, just
5: I mean, make up one. Okay, it's really clear.
1: Let's use the words um, Best Buy. Um, Best Buy is a famous uh, consumer electronics store, and somebody opens up a shop, say, Marks says, uh, "Marks, he has the Best Buy. He wants to advertise on radio. Come down to Marks Electronics for the Best Buy. For Best Buy and consumer electronics, go to Marks." And he keeps using those words, Best Buy. I don't think there's any likelihood of confusion there, do you? I mean,
5: well, what, what, what if he just takes out an ad that says Best Buy! Exclamation point.
1: That, that'd that'd be closer. Okay. In that case, there would be confusion, but Mark, in that case, would be using Best Buy as a trademark, not only to describe. And therefore, he would not fulfill the statutory requirements of the fair use defense. Because a lot of times when confusion comes up, it comes up in the in this case that — I didn't mean to make
5: it that the, in my hypothetical. you d- just, just putting it in a bold type at the beginning of the piece, Best Buy exclamation point, that means it's a trademark?
1: Well, it — would be evidence that it is a trademark. Uh, you'd have to it depends how big the words Best Buy were in relation to the word Marks Electronics.
0: Well, but if you had a if, if you had a headline uh, at the head of an ad great sale that surely is not a trademark just because you have it in bold face print.
1: Well, I agree. It's not necessarily a trademark. You have to look at the totality of the ad and, and you have to look at what the person is trying to use to tell consumers to identify and distinguish uh, the products, or in this case, the, the store. I
3: suppose if you have a sign that says park and fly and an arrow with a capital P and a capital F, uh, then it's arguably being used as a trademark. Well, Whereas if you say in a brochure, uh, rent a car from us and park and fly, then that's okay. Is that the distinction? Um,
1: yes, but I would go even further and say that if you, if you had a big sign that said park and fly and it's next to an airport, that would not necessarily be a um, – a trademark. I mean, if it said like uh, Jerry's uh, Airport uh, Parking Park and Fly, I would say that's being a descriptive uh, use. But some people may may argue differently in that case. Um, the, 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 the
4: ninth, the ninth circuit, as I understand it, did put an initial burden on the trademark holder to prove confusion. If if you look at the Petition for Cert 6A, in its opinion, it seems to recognize that the trademark holder must show that the alleged infringer's use of the mark is likely to cause confusion or to cause mistake or to deceive. deceive. So this opinion starts out by saying, yes, we know that under the Lanham Act, the trademark holder is obliged to show likelihood of confusion.
1: They do that, but then on, if you look on page 17A of my cert petition, the same opinion, the um, Ninth Circuit later on go on to say, in the middle paragraph, as expressed in cons the fair use analysis only complements the likelihood of confusion, likelihood of customer confusion analysis. And then they quote from Transco, and they say, explaining that anyone is free to use a term in its primary descriptive sense as long as such use does not result in consumer confusion as to the source of goods. Um, and, in, in effect, what they're doing is they're expanding the um, the rights of, of trademark holders of descriptive words. Essentially what they're saying is.
0: Well, they go further in that same paragraph. And the last couple of lines refer to a Lindy, Payne, Lindy Penn case, uh, the way they describe explaining that the fair use defense is not available if likelihood of confusion has been shown.
1: Right, and that's, that's where they're negating what uh, they said in the beginning of their opinion.
4: They um, do have one authority for that proposition. They cite McCarthy, for t- t- and I think they're right about that.
1: Well, they do cite McCarthy, but I, th- I, I would submit that McCarthy is incorrect in this case.
4: But, he, but there is a treatise writer who does take the position that if there's confusion, there's no fair use defense.
1: Well, there are other treatise writers. Kane, for example, takes a contrary position and says that fair use will always be a defense, even if even if there is likelihood of confusion.
4: So does the um, what is it? The unfair competition Restatement.
1: Uh, yes, that takes a, a similar position as well. That there can be confusion and fair use at the same time. Again, you have to look at what's causing the confusion, and, and most often the problem is, problem is the confusion is being caused because the person with the uh, with the words in question is using it as a mark, and that's causing the confusion. Um, um, if um, there's certain there's certain um, the certain terms and words that Congress has said will n- never get trademark protection. Uh, descriptive words, of course, is, is one of them um, in the sense that they can never get trademark protection in their primary descriptive sense. They only get trademark protection in their, in their secondary meaning sense if they can actually prove secondary meaning.
4: But I thought we're dealing with an incontestable mark here when the secondary meaning would be assumed.
1: Yes, in the case of an incontestable mark, secondary meaning is presumed. However, that still does not take away the burden of the holder of an incontestable mark approving likelihood of confusion. And second, the trademark um, protection attaches only to the secondary meaning of the mark, never to the primary descriptive meaning of the words in question. Um, And One other quick example, the the laws say you cannot attain a trademark in the U.S. flag. Now we have 12 ice cream manufacturers, they put the flag on their ice cream. There will be confusion there. Someone will say, I want the ice cream with the flag on it, but they all have a flag on it. That's another example where Congress said we will tolerate confusion. Sometimes we tolerate confusion so we can free up descriptive words so so, um, business owners are free to describe their goods to consumers. And if I may, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time.
0: Very well, Mr. Mashat. Uh, Ms. Millett, we'll hear from you.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Justice Scalia, you asked for an example of a case where there might be confusion, but there would still be a fair use. This Court's decision in William Warner versus Eli Lilly, which was a, a common law case, cited on page 27 of our brief, gives an example of that. You had cocoa quinine and quin cocoa being sold. And this Court held, as a matter of the common law fair use doctrine, that the descriptive use, fair, truthful, descriptive use of a term to describe a product will, will be permitted even if consumer mistakes result. There are other cases cited in the briefs, House Scale, uh, cited in our brief, the Canal Company versus Clark case. The fair use defense that's at issue here takes its has its roots in that common law precedent. And that common law precedent in origin speaks directly, Justice O'Connor, to your and Justice Kennedy to your questions about what does a fairness component of this test in the statute mean. There is not a general requirement that the I'll say the defendant here, the parties were reversed, but the the non-trademark holder act fairly. That's not what Congress said. It says the term, and and you can see on page 9A of the statutory appendix to our brief, the term has to be used fairly, and in good faith, putting that aside, used fairly only to describe the product, That is not some sort of general equitable receptacle receptacle for fairness concerns. That focuses on what the defendant did and how they acted in describing. That's not a test of how the public reacted. How did the defendant behave, which is exactly what William Warner, Canal Company, and Howe Scale also looked at. In common parlance, in a common dictionary meaning, when you talk about fairly describing something, that's not general equity. That is — is it a legitimate, reasonable, proper, ab- and objectively apt and fair way to describe a product? One could reason well, does to- —
2: does consumer conf- — if, if substantial consumer confusion is shown by the plaintiff, is that enough to defeat a
7: fair use defense? Not by itself, no, Justice O'Connor. Congress told us what will defeat the defense, and that is that is a conclusion that the term is being used as a mark. Consumer confusion might be, you could explain that that demonstrates that it's being used as a mark. It might show that you're not objectively, reasonably, accurately describing your product. If I describe Twinkies as a sugary snack, that's a, I can fairly describe Twinkies as a sugary, sugary snack. I can't fairly describe Twinkies as a healthy food. Suppose or, in the
3: Cocoa Quinine case, uh, the non, the, the non-holder, uh is doing just fine uh without using those particular terms. And then he decides, you know, I'm gonna cut into that market and I'm gonna use the term cocoa quinine. Um and I'm gonna do that just in order to get more customers away from the trademark. Is is that good faith?
7: Yes, because there's nothing wrong in the marketplace with wanting to increase your business and to do better and to use descriptive terms Descriptively to do that. The good faith component here But what, what, what,
5: what if he intends to increase his market share precisely by causing the confusion? That, that would eliminate right. the good faith element, wouldn't it?
7: The good faith element is do I intend It depends on what you mean by causing the confusion. If I intend to freeload or ride or exploit the, the secondary yeah. meaning of the term Right. That's what good faith means in trademark law generally. It has an established component. If I tend to do that, but just showing that consumer confusion could result or that I hope consumers will pause and think about, you know, what, what's in the, what am I now being offered in the marketplace? But I have to, if I intend to avail myself of the secondary m- meaning that you've, you've established of the goodwill that you've generated, that's what good faith goes to. But used, re- used fairly to describe is not a general means of just saying, if there's yes, confusion, that's a bad...
8: What does the term microcolor describe?
7: The term microcolor describes — this is not my area of expertise, but describes, as I understand it, the inks that are used for this permanent makeup process. And the reason it's called microcolor — Does it have a
8: meaning in in any context other than describing the the one party's product in this case?
7: I I wouldn't begin to know whether other — professions or occupations use the term microcolor my understanding from the record is that the color is obvious that's it's it's different colored inks Um, and the reason that they use the term micro and this is on page um, i believe 98 of the first volume of the joint appendix is that the molecular size of these inks is very very fine it's going into skin it's micron size Um, and so that's i think the, the, the as suggested by uh uh, petitioner's client that that's the origin of the term micro color now micro um, is a common term it's a common descriptive term in its own right it appears in many contexts obviously computers is one that we're all familiar with medical uh, devices often we're to to micro um, but micro microcolor- wasn't
4: there wasn't there something to the effect that micro pigmentation is a synonym synonym in the trade for permanent makeup it's another name for permanent makeup and it's my, it has micro in it, micropigmentation.
7: That's my understanding. Yes.
4: Micro pigmentation sounds awfully close to microcolor.
7: Microcolor. Yeah. yeah that, that's my understanding. Again, I don't really want to weigh in on one side of the dispute or the other on, on on the merits of whether microcolor is a generic or a common. Well, you have
5: to weigh in on it. I mean, you have to show that the. It seems to me, if you think that side should win, that the words are being used in a descriptive sense. And if microcolor doesn't mean a blessed thing to anybody unless they associate it with the trademark, then it seems to me you lose.
7: Justice Scalia, the the problem here is that the Ninth Circuit said that what makes them lose is not that they didn't use this fairly to describe their product or not that they they failed to act in good faith or not that they were using this as a trademark. That's not the
5: issue in the case. Right,
7: right. And 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 again, the record shows that, in fact, the descriptive use of this was conceded in this case, and that's on page 29A of the Petition Appendix and also in the Joint Appendix on 152. But again, our concern is that this statute has to be read with the terms Congress enacted, Congress drew a balance here. Congress struck the balance between allowing, giving unprecedented protection, as this Court recognized in Park and Fly, to descriptive terms, but policing the line between the secondary meaning that attaches to descriptive terms and the reserving for the marketplace for competition the availability of descriptive terms in their original descriptive sense. In
5: other words, if you choose to use a descriptive term as your logo, you take your chances.
7: Exactly. That
5: descriptive term will be used fairly and in good faith by somebody else and cause confusion. Exactly. And if you don't want confusion, pick a term that isn't descriptive.
7: That's exactly right. There's a trade-off. When you pick a descriptive term, you get right up front, right up front, the immediate appeal and resonance of a term to the con- to the consumers best buy who wouldn't want the best buy i want the best buy chunky candy bars it's going to be easier to break into the marketplace with chunky candy bars or almond joy candy bars because consumers will have a sense of what they're getting than if you come in with a kodak schwartz, and,
5: schwartz candy bar
7: schwartz candy bar kodak i not do why. anything for you <laughs> i don't know why that is and why would i want to eat it they're going to have to do more work Um, But the downside, the trade-off is, as you you said, Justice Scalia, that you do not get to take those terms out of usage. Trademark law protects usage, not words. And if the usage is descriptive and it's fair in the sense that it's reasonable, apt, and accurate, as this Court said, in William Warner Canal Company, House Scale, in the unfair competition sense, in the Kellogg versus uh, National Biscuit Company, the shredded wheat case, if, if it's apt and accurate that's what used fairly means and if it satisfies that objective test and if it satisfies the subject of good faith test and it's not used as a mark we will tolerate that confusion because how do you tell whether it's used as a mark that
4: that certainly seems to be central is it used as a mark and if it's used as a mark then there is a, a violation
7: the, the fair use defense is unavailable if it's used as a mark. There are some right. other defenses that are available, but the fair use defense is, by definition, unavailable. That's correct. The way you, you prove whether something is used as a mark, there's sort of two ways of getting to that end. When something's used as a mark, that means it is signifying to the origin or source of those goods in the marketplace. It's not just describing it. It's telling you who's making it or who's putting it out on the market.
4: So um, let's go back to the, the use on the the brochure of a logo like? I mean, as long as they're using just the word microcolor, I see your position entirely. It's used descriptively, not as a mark. But what about when they use something that looks like a mark?
7: Well, there's there's going to be difficult questions of proof. Our position is that that by taking a descriptive term, you don't get to consign everybody else to 10-point Times New Roman font and that they can do some- uh colorful display, but not a mark. Thank you, Ms. Miller.
0: Uh, Ms. Brinkman, we'll hear from you.
9: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Defendants uh, petitioner's absolute defence is contrary to the text, purpose, structure, and history of the fair use defence of the Lanham Act. In response to Justice Scalia's question about this is the risk that someone takes when they choose a descriptive term, this defense does not apply only to descriptive terms. Under petitioners' view, this um, defense would be available to users of arbitrary, fanciful, and suggestive marks so long as they were used descriptively and not as a mark. Indeed, our mark here is uh, not — can
5: you use a fanciful term descriptively? I mean, I, I think that's, that's the definition of an arbitrary or fanciful term, that it doesn't mean anything.
9: Well, it may mean something in a different context. I think an example um, you could use is the, um, the arbitrary trademark of Apple for computers, There could be advertising for computer electronics incorporated at the fall when there's the back-to-school rush. Using the term Apple in a descriptive sense, Apple's for teachers, you know, at the beginning of the year, come to our store. So in reliance on that, you drive two hours because you're the school district director that needs to buy ten new computers to hook into the system. You get there, it turns out they're not Apple computers.
8: No, but the use of the apple is clearly a descriptive term with secondary meaning. That's what gives it protection. But if you have an arbitrary term, as Justice Scalia says, how could that be, how, how could the defense have any relevance to Uh, uh, a fanciful or arbitrary term. I thought the defense only was relevant when you everybody agrees you're talking about descriptive terms.
9: No, Your Honor, and the um, Solicitor General does not take that position either. In their brief, they recognize that this applies to all level of marks.
3: Well, but that all we need to do to decide this case is to assume that it's descriptive.
9: Well, Your Honor, the Ninth Circuit's holding was that it was inherently distinctive or descriptive, and we maintain that it is suggestive. As um, was pointed out early, this isn't a, a word that can be found in the English language anywhere. It doesn't um, describe the pigment or the inked. What it does is suggests the small nature of the – and the fine lines that are ultimately used when this is applied. Well, well, let, let, seem- let's
3: assume that it was descriptive uh, with, uh, The Ninth Circuit test still apply, that you would have to show absence of confusion before you raise the good faith defense?
9: We don't believe that's what the Ninth Circuit test does. This was a summary judgment entered against us when we had introduced — Well, would you
3: agree, then, that in a case where the mark is descriptive, the non-trademark holder, the defendant in the case, can raise the fair use defense without having to show that there's no confusion?
9: Yes, we believe it's the plaintiff's burden. It's clear it's the plaintiff's burden to show likelihood of confusion. The point is, under the district court's absolute rule, notwithstanding evidence in this case of actual confusion, indeed, summary judgment was entered against us because the district court t- petitioner's absolute view that there's no relevance whatsoever to likelihood of confusion to the of fair use. That's the ruling the Ninth Circuit overruled, and that's what needs to be affirmed.
6: I thought the question we're supposed to answer which is in the blue brief is whether they have to show an absence of confusion, and I guess now you agree. The answer to that question is no.
9: Yeah. Is the, that right?
6: You agree with that?
9: Yes, it's well, the. Well, plain that's of, the end of
6: this case, isn't it? That's that's what we took it to decide, and that's you agree with it, and they agree with it, so everybody's happy. I believe you don't even have to write an opinion. We, I believe.
9: <laughs> I believe that petitioner came up with that formulation because they had taken on the burden because they were the movement on summary judgment. That's where that misnomer came from. Did you object to
5: the formulation of the question presented? I mean here's the question, President. Does the classic fair use defence to trademark infringement require the party asserting the defense to demonstrate an absence of likelihood of confusion? That's the question. And, And you say no
9: we agree that the plaintiff it's clear under and the Ninth Circuit as the Ninth Circuit pointed out that Justice Ginsburg quoted before made clear that the plaintiff does bear the burden of establishing likelihood of confusion now
6: suppose you establish it maybe we can find some differences here would you also agree that simply establishing confusion is not enough to overcome the fair use defense you'd have to also show that the confusion along with possibly other things are such that it shows unfairness, or what's the other word, uh, unfairness or lack of good faith?
9: We believe that when Congress —
6: You agree with that or not?
9: No, Your Honor. We agree that when Congress wrote the text in 1946 — it used the term used fairly to refer to the common law, which included okay. not only the common law of technical trademarks, but the common law of unfair competition. Good. So now
6: we have something I could disagree with you about. Now the question would be <laughs> uh, why, why it's the words are unfair and the, the, why, why, if you just show some confusion, which normally there would be, or quite often there would be, why is that enough to overcome uh, the, uh, the defense that they put
5: here?
9: Your Honor, at the time um, that those words were used, the common law, and we respectfully disagreed with the Solicitor General's Office on the reading of "warner." and we'd urge the Court to read that. The reason the Court allowed the use of the term in that case is because they quite clearly said it did not have secondary meaning. There is no trademark protection for descriptive words with secondary meaning. We are in complete agreement with that. We are dealing with the secondary meaning. All That's right, all. So now, if protection. we're going
6: to go back into what the court did, I would say I was a little disturbed reading this as to why you get protection at all, because I was thinking micro color. Well, that describes very well what it is. It's a tiny, teeny, weeny, weeny bit of color. <laughs> and when I think of micro pigment, I think of a farm animal. I think I don't know what I think. <laughs> It's confusing to me. So, 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 uh, for an average person, word microcolor. I thought, gee, that's very descriptive of just what it is—a teeny weeny bit of color.
9: Well, Your Honor, I would urge you to look at joint appendix pages 137 to 139, where it lists 20 other competitors that sell this very product that have no cost. to use that word. It is not used in the industry as a descriptive term. They're called pigment. They're called inks. They're not called microcolors. That is my client's trademark What's terminology. the difference between pigment
4: and color, especially when it's not just microcolor? Don't they advertise microcolor red, microcolor beige? So...
9: It's minutes. a typical suggestive term. It was created to associate the high quality that my client markets in this product with that term. I want those micro-color pigments, not the other pigments that are but sold what by about the word,
4: is, am I wrong in what I suggested before, that the word micro-pigmentation is used in the trade as a synonym for permanent makeup?
9: That's correct. And oftentimes um, trademarks are shortened versions of um, other terminology. The fact is it's the juxtaposition of microcolors that is the protected trademark here. I'd but also there — But is,
10: there is a sense of color in which color is synonymous with pigment. Uh, and, and I assume that's what was accepted here, which, which leads me to my question. I, I don't understand why we're having this discussion. Exactly. I don't — Because I thought it was agreed that for purposes of the defense — this was a descriptive use. Is that incorrect?
9: Yes, Your Honor. For purposes of the defense, it's the other party that has to be used. the Could you just point to me? I'm
10: not asking so much about the law. I just want to know what this case is. Is, is, is there some place in the materials that we've got that indicate that, in fact, You dispute that there is a uh, descriptive use here?
9: Yes. Footnote three of the red brief explains that this purported concession that they discuss about the use of this mark had to do with, as Justice Ginsburg was distinguishing before, early uses on a bottle and a flyer, which we dispute occurred, but assuming they occurred, Those were descriptive. In 1998 and 1999, petitioners started using this on their marketing brochures in a very different manner. Excuse
5: me. This still goes to the merits of the defense and not to the question presented. The question presented is, descriptive or not descriptive, do you have a defense if it's uh, if there is consumer confusion. And, our and your position, uh, if you're opposing the question presented, is that if there is consumer uh, confusion, there is no defense. And it's, I thought that was the only question we were going to discuss here, not, in fact, whether, if there is such a defense, it has been made out in this case because these words were or were not descriptive. I mean, that's a- Thank that's you,
9: a, Your Honor. I'd be happy to discuss that. As I pointed out, it's contrary to the textual um, language used by the Congress in 1946, they meant used fairly to mean what the common law meant the common law prohibited confusing uses of both technical trademarks and trade names. Moreover, petitioners' interpretation is contrary to the core purpose of the Lanham Act, which is to prevent customer confusion. The whole point is, though, that you can walk into a store. Ms.
4: Brinkman, may I stop you there? Because I thought you had conceded, as I think you must. I thought you conceded quite clearly. I wrote down what you said. It is the plaintiff's burden to show likelihood of confusion. So if it's the plaintiff's burden to show likelihood of confusion, how can it be the defendant's burden to show unlikelihood of confusion?
9: We don't believe it's the defendant's burden. We believe we. the district court was correctly reversed by the Ninth Circuit in entering summary judgment against us. Notwithstanding the fact that there was dispute regarding likelihood of confusion, and the district court did that because it said it was absolutely irrelevant to the determination of used fair. I, I
0: think this is really quite quite confusing, Ms. Brinkman. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the the question pre, the question presented, as several people have pointed out. <laughs> whether the Lanham Act's fair use defense to trademark infringement requires a party asserting the defense to demonstrate the absence of a likelihood of consumer confusion. Now, do you agree or disagree with that? We — You can surely answer that we agree or we don't agree.
9: We don't agree. We believe that likelihood of confusion — defeats the fair use defense.
0: Okay, okay.
9: And we would point out that as the textual argument and the purpose argument —
8: May I just interrupt When would an ever be able to use the defense if the plaintiff makes out a prima facie case? The prima facie case, I assume, includes the burden of establishing likelihood of confusion. So is there any any room for the defense at all?
9: As we point out in our brief, Your Honor, we do believe that since the amendment in 1988, this is — Ultimately, become a redundancy with the plainest burden of showing likelihood of confusion. So you it have remains, to know. Yes, it remains as a congressional emphasis that even if, um, in a trademark situation, a use that is not likely to confuse is allowed. That is what this was but a necessary. It's necessi- allowed
8: without the affirmative defense.
9: To understand why this came in, it's important to understand in 1946 this defense applied only to incontestable marks. It did not apply to other registered marks. At that time, incontestable markholders did not have to prove likelihood of confusion. That incontestable mark was a conclusive evidence of the markholder's exclusive right to use that mark on the same goods, same mark on the same goods that were set forth in the affidavit with the PTO. That was akin to early common law. At that point, the plaintiff could go into court with their incontestable mark and it was conclusive evidence. So there had to be a safety valve for defendants to be able to say, okay, I know this is an incontestable mark, I know that, and I know I'm using it on the same goods, but notwithstanding, I can use it because I'm using it fairly. I'm not confusing consumers with this. That's what the purpose was. In 19- uh, are you
8: suggesting, I want to be sure I follow mm-hmm. your thing, are you saying that in, in back at, in those days somebody with an incontestable mark did not have to prove likelihood of confusion?
9: It was presumed by the weight of that. That was the conclusive it was evidence. presumed, why
8: wouldn't that defeat the defense, too, then?
9: Because the way Congress um, structured 1115B, it was conclusive evidence except subject to these seven specific defenses. This was the fourth yeah,
10: But you're saying, isn't your answer to yes, Justice Stevens, it was a rebuttable presumption? Yes. Yeah.
9: Yes, I'm sorry, yes. Yes, Your Honor. Um, I would also um, point out that when Congress amended in 1988, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that they intended to change this. And that's what's so fundamental about petitioners' position, the district court position. This is a gaping hole in the core purpose of the Lanham Act. It is to al-
6: IBM had used the word computers when they were the only company for 10 or 15 years to mark their product. And now another company comes along and they produce the same thing. They want to use the word computer. You're saying that uh, that would be the end of it. They couldn't do it.
9: Not at all, Your Honor. If people
6: would be confused, for a while they'll think that uh, computer refers to IBM. There'd be confusion. But it's the best word to describe the product, in fact, at least a very good one.
9: Your Honor, if that were the case, it would more than likely almost certainly be a generic term. Well, at the very beginning,
6: IBM was the only one to do it. They didn't have to call it computer. They could have called it a word processor.
9: But, Your Honor. They
6: could have called it a a think-faster I don't know what they could have called it, but, I mean, you know, they chose the word computer.
9: And Congress took that explicitly into account when it allowed any mark to be canceled at any time for genericism. Escalator, aspirin are all examples of your situation. But, but the That's exactly are. what happened. And when they became a generic term, that trademark was canceled, and it became used as generic. It's, Congress so took So what that is into this fair
6: use defense for, since uh, you're normally going to show confusion to show the infringement. What's it for, in your opinion?
9: Since 1988 is a vestigial reminder of what Congress wanted to make sure was understood in 1946. Even for the strongest, incontestable mark on the same goods, we are still going to always allow uses that are not likely to confuse. We don't
5: usually interpret statutes that way. I mean, you tell us what Congress had in mind, but our best indication of what Congress had in mind is the words of the statute. And the words of the statute make no sense. If they say uh, you, you you have to prove uh, confusion and the only, however, there's a special defense which you have, which turns out to be there's no confusion. That's not a special defense.
9: Two points, Your Honor. It makes um, it
5: a meaningless statute, really.
9: Two points. Petitioner gives no meaning to the words used fairly. So it's a worst statutory construction problem I thought under they did interpretation. And when
4: they outlined to us what it means is you're using it descriptively and not as a mark.
9: Your Honor, those are other terms that are used in the statute. Those are separate requirements. There are four requirements in the provision, used not as a mark, used descriptively, used in good faith, and used fairly. They read used fairly right out of the language. Am
4: I right that several cases say the key here is are you using it as a mark? Because that suggests you're you're trying to — off your goods as another's. That's why Are you using it as a mark, or are you using it merely descriptively? I thought use as a mark was the key. If you're using it as a mark, <laughs> you're not using it in good faith.
9: No. That is one of the factors in likelihood of confusion that you can take into account. But there can be non-trademark uses that are confusing. The the common law cases we talk about are are full of examples of that. I I would like to make one other response to Justice Scalia's point, if I could. Um, Justice Scalia, to the extent that um, you hold that the fair use defense no longer prohibits all uses are likely to confuse as unfair. We um, would look to the suggestion made by the Amiki that there is a middle ground that likely to confusion in any event cannot be completely irrelevant to the used fairly determination as petitioner in the district court would have it. We discuss on page 15 of our brief, for example, the restatements position, which we would urge the court to look to, which is akin to what the Amiki suggests.
5: That may well be, but I don't think that's the question presented here. I mean, we we could agree with that that it's relevant to deciding the defense and still, and still answer the question presented the way that the petitioner wants.
9: Well, the District Court's entry of summary judgment must be reversed. The Ninth Circuit did that because of its total disregard for likelihood of confusion. Well, so
10: that, that, that may be, but the issue here is whether the Ninth Circuit simply went too far in the other direction and required too much. And, and all we have to determine is whether there is a per se obligation to prove non-confusion. If we do so, that doesn't necessarily reinstate the District Court's position. It simply says that the the Ninth Circuit went too far. Isn't that correct? That that, I mean, that is what is, that is the issue before us?
9: I think the ruling from this Court would have to be that it's not an absolute defense against likelihood of confusion.
4: How about if the ruling were a defendant who uses a descriptive term fairly and in good faith to describe its goods or services is not liable for infringement even if some residual confusion is likely. That's what the restatement that you've just been um, applauding yes. says.
9: And that discussion explains a couple things. It explains that if there is a likelihood of substantial confusion, that would be the outer limit. Ordinarily, that would not be a fair use. It also <laughs> points out that likelihood confusion is relevant to that determination that Your Honor just described. And yes, we would win under that position, Your Honor. That's absolutely correct. That's the middle ground of the restatement. Well, you would win. You'd still have to vacate
2: the judgment below, which seemed to go too far in saying that uh, if there's any consumer confusion, that's the end of it.
9: Well, Your Honor, we would um, actually urge the Court to affirm the judgment below. As the Court, we cite cases on our um, brief, the Meritor case and the um, Yakima case, in which the judgment of the Ninth Circuit reversing the district court should be affirmed. And there are other holdings of the Ninth Circuit also that are not before the court that should be affirmed.
0: Well, you're urging then that the, the Ninth Circuit be affirmed on alternate grounds.
9: Yes, Your Honor. We, that,
0: we rarely do that.
9: Yes, Your Honor, I understand that. But in this particular situation — Why wouldn't we just vacate it and
2: you have other uh, — Grounds that the Court below didn't address, but why
9: wouldn't, at the very least, we vacate the judgment and send it back? We certainly would agree, Your Honor, if that if we are then given an opportunity, our remand, to go back to summary judgment and carry our burden of establishing a likelihood of confusion, but not have it held against us. For example, in the middle ground, to determine what used fairly is, an additional likelihood of confusion, we would suggest that there are other factors that the restatement um, puts forth. For example, whether there is commercial justification for the use. Again, we'd point out there is no commercial justification. There are 20 other competitors that don't use this terminology.
5: They might have been afraid that you'd sue them.
9: <laughs> <laughs> so that's quite a strong mark, Your Honor. Um, Ms. B- Ms. B- am I right
4: that they were — They being KP, they were in fact using the word microcolor before you registered your trademark.
9: No, we dispute that, Your Honor. They've never produced one bottle from that period. In fact, we introduced four bottles of their. um, That would be that would be disputed. It's disputed, yes, Your Honor. And
4: are you making any differentiation at all between the mini mini color red or whatever and this logo that appears?
9: Yes, all the difference in the world, Your Honor. We maintain that that is a mark use. I mean, the district court rejected that as well, but it, that is one of the issues where you suggested that um, courts have resolved these on whether something's used as a mark or not. That is not an easy answer. And that is why it's always part and parcel of the likelihood of confusion. That's the purpose of the Lanham Act, to ensure that when you go into a store, you can buy the product you want. For example, in the health and safety area here, you may be willing to buy a product that costs more money because you know of the quality of them at the same time. You want to be assured when you go in because you don't want to buy the one that's recalled all the time or that has ingredients that cause allergies for you. That's what the Lanham Act is to protect. And it encourages the economic efficiency of the market.
8: Your, your customers are pretty sophisticated people, I guess. They're, they're specialists in an, in an unusual trade. So they not just like the person walking off the street who doesn't know what it is. They probably know this market pretty well.
9: That's directly relevant to the likelihood of confusion, Your Honor. In fact, um, the typical way of proving this evidence when it go- ultimately goes to trial is through consumer surveys. And the law is clear that that survey would not be of the person on the street. It would be of the appropriate purchasers who are more sophisticated clinicians and cosmetologists. But, Your Honor, even on that um, situation, in this record, we have direct evidence of confusions. So it's a joint appendix page 170, Your Honor. It's the declaration of Gloria Torres, where about 1998, 1999, she was one of the people who did sales. And she started getting calls from people wanting products. And it confused her because they weren't on my client's customer list. And also they were citing different prices. It didn't mean anything to her at the time. It turns out this was the confusion because they were actually seeing this new usage on the marketing brochure by KP Permanent.
8: Just out of curiosity, it's nothing to do with the case. Do they market this product with color charts just like paint companies do?
9: They do, Your Honor. That's absolutely right. Color wheels, color. And also in the micropigmentation industry, it's very important because even though it's like tattooing, the purpose is absolutely the opposite. It's to hide the color. So mixing of the colors is a critical component of that industry. I want to make another point about the economic efficiency that is furthered by the trademark laws and not allowing um, likelihood of confusing uses, which is what Congress intended. By allowing purchasers to know that they're getting the product that they want, they're able to be more efficient in the um, I also market. Also, it's very
6: efficient to allow people to communicate in English.
9: Your Honor, there is nothing that's, to prevent uh, that. Uh,
6: well, I guess that's the question, because sometimes people well, – I, I have no doubt that I – mean,
9: I w- Your Honor, I don't think there's anything um, – The way that Petitioner cast the Lanham Act grossly overstates it. I mean, I would just submit the following list. The only thing that the Lanham — the Lanham Act does not allow registration of generic brands, as we mentioned before. It allows cancellation of any mark if it becomes generic. It applies only to commercial uses, not usage in ordinary English language, only in connection with the mark. It, it can only have a valid trademark when it's actively being used. Any mark can be canceled for abandonment after three years. Um, it also, of course, only applies when there's likelihood of confusion. Also there is an expert agency that reviews and goes through a, a process in which there can be oppositions, objections, all of this can be brought up at that point and. Also, Congress directly addressed anti-competitive interests when it enacted the statute. It, in 1946, enacted B-7 as a defense for um, antitrust violations. It also reinforced that the Justice Department, the (coughs) FTC, maintains its enforcement authority. And it also had a particular provision that allows the FTC to go in and cancel registrations. I'd also point out —
0: The expert agency, which you referred to, is represented by the government here, and it takes a position quite different from yours.
9: At this point in time, Your Honor, I would also point out economic efficiency is. A- are
0: you saying at this point in time, are you suggesting that it took a different position some other time? Y-
9: Your Honor, in this case, it um, this mark has been put through, becoming to test, but went through all of the procedures that the PTO required. There's no question that this is a valid mark. Well, the government isn't assailing the validity of the mark. No one is <laughs>
0: challenging it. The, the, it's the fair use defense.
9: N- Your Honor. No, what I — the government's position is the same position that, in fact, it urged before Congress in 1946. The Court's opinion in Park and Fly makes this clear. They did not want descriptive terms at all protected, even with secondary meaning. And as the Park and Fly opinion makes clear, Congress rejected that and struck the balance this way and included all of these other safeguards, not allowing registration of generic marks and only prohibiting uses that are likely to confuse We would also point out that that encourages economic efficiencies for businesses as well. By being able to benefit from the reputation of your mark, the business invests more. As soon as confusion is allowed, there's a free rider problem, and that competitor is free riding on that investment, and it serves as a disincentive for further investment, and it undermines the quality of uh, the goods, because the only way your mark- Certainly
2: the restatement and the view
9: of some of the amiki is contrary to yours on this. We believe that the restatement of the Amiki are very consistent in rejecting petitioners' position and the district court's position that likelihood of confusion is completely irrelevant. We embrace that. I think that's a consistent position, and that would be the bottom line I would urge on this court, because the petitioner's position and the district court wreak havoc truly with the statutory framework that Congress set up and intended. We believe, as a matter of strict cap- strict criticism, cap- Statutory construction. Then indeed, it is now of a vestigial provision, the fair use defense after the 1988 changes to the incontestability provision. But if the court is not going to hold that that fair use defense prohibits uses that are likely to confuse, we would urge the court to adopt the restatement position. That's a totality of the circumstances. Likely confusion is relevant. We think factors <laughs> That it's confusing in relationship to a health and safety issue would be relevant. The investment by the mark holder could be re- relevant. And to the extent the competitor had a commercial justification for it because it was a term that everyone needed to use. But microcolors is just not that kind of terminology as the record in this case demonstrates. If there are no further questions, Tom.
0: Thank you, Ms. Bringman. Uh, Mr. Mashat, you have three minutes remaining.
1: Thank you. I'd like to point out that uh, Ms. Brinkman's uh, reference to the legislative history is incorrect, and i just like to refer the Court's attention to my reply brief pages uh, 14 to 17, where basically it shows that um, prior to 1988, um, courts were required to find um, a likelihood of confusion before um, finding for the plaintiff on a trademark case. I'd also like to point out that in this particular case, the trademark is not for the word Color". The trademark is for the, is for the logo mark. And here's some of the confusion. The um, respondents were able to obtain the trademark registration for the logo itself. And um, the strength of the logo itself is not being copied. We're just using the descriptive words within the logo itself. And Congress always intended for descriptive words to be free for everybody to use in their primary descriptive sense, so long as the, uh, the person, the subsequent user, is not using those descriptive words in the secondary meaning sense. And, and that's the distinction. And confusion is only an issue to determine whether or not the elements of the Fair Use Defense is being met. But That confusion should be distinguished from likelihood of confusion. Confusion is a factual determination. Likelihood of confusion is a legal determination. So you can use whether or not there is actual confusion to determine whether or not the mark — sorry, the word is being used as a mark.
5: I I forget your position if you've taken it. Do Do you agree that the degree of confusion that is predictable or that is likely is one of the elements that can be used to determine whether the use is a fair one?
1: you agree or disagree with that I, I would agree the degree of confusion but that comes into whether or not sure. you, That's yes all. okay in this case use fairly means it does mean something um we're saying use fairly refers to whether or not the use is a truthful or reasonably accurate description of the mark and it always truthful it was something that the common law always looked at to see um that, that was a now, that was a term used, in fact, by this court in the Warner decision. Um, basically, to quote briefly from that decision, it said, the use of a similar name by another to truthfully describe his own product does not constitute legal or moral or wrong. So I, I would maintain that um, use fairly means truthful, or if you can't determine whether or not it's exactly true, reasonably accurate. And that would be uh, the meaning of have used fairly. And, of course, good faith refers to the intent. And, and there you have the, the elements of the fair use defense. Um, also, I'd just like to point out once again the Ninth Circuit opinion. It says on the bottom of page 17A, it says, K.P. can only benefit from the fair use defense if there is no likelihood of confusion between KP's use of the term "microcolour" and Lasting's mark, um, and then they go on to say, as discussed above, because in this case there can be no fair use. Thank you, Mr. M- Mr. Uh, the case is submitted.